You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 130, Fort McIntosh, Georgia. As Continental troops pushed the British out of most of New Jersey, other parts of the country were inspired to get more active as well. Patriots had taken over Georgia, forcing most of the Tories in that colony to flee to East Florida, mostly St. Augustine. I guess the first question to address is why Florida did not join the rest of the colonies in the protests and later rebellion and independence. The short answer is that there really wasn't much to Florida at the time. Britain had only acquired Florida at the end of the Seven Years' War in exchange for returning Cuba to Spain. When Spain withdrew from Florida, all but eight Spanish subjects left as well. Britain had attempted to attract new settlers, but had had little luck. Many of the British landowners in Florida by the 1770s were absentee land speculators who were still not quite sure if Florida was going back to Spain at some point in the future. The oppressive heat and mosquitoes did not make the area particularly attractive for settlement. Florida itself was divided into East and West Florida. East Florida covered most of what is today the state of Florida and had its capital at St. Augustine. West Florida covered the Gulf Coast, what we today call the western part of the Florida Panhandle, and it had its capital in Pensacola. Today, I'm just going to talk about East Florida. What little population that lived in East Florida beyond Indian tribes lived in and around St. Augustine. The estimated population was around 3,000, half of which were slaves of African descent. Another thousand or so were Roman Catholic indentured servants, mostly from the Mediterranean island of Menorca, which was a British possession at the time. So only about 500 were free people, and a good number of those were women who had no say in politics. This meant that there were only a few hundred free Englishmen living in Florida. The weather was unbearable, and many people died from tropical illnesses. Few people wanted to live there, and those who did often did not last long. Florida's governor, Patrick Tonin, had been a career officer with 30 years' experience in the regular army, rising to the rank of colonel. In 1774, he came to St. Augustine to collect on the 20,000-acre land grant that the Crown had given him, and also to serve as the colony's new governor. Almost right away, his little colony started to grow as Tories from Georgia and the Carolinas began to flee Patriot harassment in their home colonies. Tonin used this opportunity to grow his colony 
by providing land grants to the new refugees, eventually getting permission from London to take ownership of some of the private lands that absentee landlords had never come to claim. In the spring of 1776, patriots from South Carolina and Georgia conducted several raids into Florida, mostly to burn or plunder Tory plantations. Around the same time, Lord Dunmore in Virginia ordered Governor Tonin to send reinforcements to Virginia. Florida had to send away most of the single regiment that was stationed in St. Augustine. Tonin complained that he barely had enough soldiers to garrison the fort, let alone fight off any potential attack. Florida's government had a small patriot faction that Tonin thought posed a potential risk. The governor identified at least four prominent men who he thought supported seditious activities. William Drayton, the chief justice of the colony, was a cousin of patriot William Henry Drayton of South Carolina. Two wealthy merchants, James Penman and Spencer Mann, also seemed to favor the patriots. Tonin also suspected Andrew Turnbull, who was provincial secretary and clerk of the East Florida Council, as leaning toward the Patriot cause as well. Each of these men ended up back in South Carolina, though many of their issues seemed to be related toward an animus with Governor Tonin, rather than having any sort of ideological support for the Patriots. Tonin also had concerns about his own lieutenant governor, John Moultrie, the brother of South Carolina Patriot leader William Moultrie. William, you may recall, had fought General Clinton at the Battle of Sullivan's Island in Charleston Harbor that I discussed back in episode 96. By late 1776, Moultrie held a general's commission in the Continental Army. Despite William Moultrie's becoming a leading Patriot, John Moultrie stayed a committed Tory supporting the Loyalist cause. John eventually went into exile in England after the war. So, in 1776, John Moultrie attempted to raise a Loyalist militia regiment that he would lead to defend the colony in case of invasion, possibly by his own brother. Despite Moultrie's efforts, the attempts to raise six white companies and four black companies, presumably made up of slaves, did not seem to come of much. It does not appear that the regiment ever recruited the men it hoped to muster. There simply were not enough men in Florida to form a regiment and still keep the plantations going. They mostly raised a few small companies of rangers who could conduct hit-and-run raids. Governor Tonin next turned to the largest source of men and military power in the region the Creek and Seminole tribes. The Creeks largely wanted to remain neutral and stay out of this fight, but the Seminole were more inclined to support the British. The Seminole were a relatively new political organization, having broken away from the Creek nation about a generation earlier. They came primarily from natives who had been treated particularly badly by the Spanish when Spain controlled Florida. The Seminoles had allied themselves with the British in Georgia in order to fight the Spanish when they were in Florida. When Britain took control of Florida after the French and Indian War, the Seminole enjoyed a period of relative peace and prosperity. They had good relationships with British Indian agents 
and had every reason to want to remain loyal allies. They were especially concerned about Indian agents' warnings that the colonists wanted to move further inland and take over their lands. So, backing royal authorities seemed to be in their direct interest. Seminole chief Ahia, known as Cowkeeper because, well, he'd become a prosperous cattle rancher in northern Florida, supported Tonin and agreed to provide warriors to fight the Georgians who were threatening Florida. Although the Creeks overall remained neutral, some local Creeks also joined the Seminole, with particular interest in raiding the Georgia frontier. While Florida Governor Tonin was scrambling to find any force he could to counter the Georgia Patriots, the Georgia Patriots themselves were not terribly united. Much of the internal dissension in Georgia surrounded a man named Button Gwinnett, a relatively recent immigrant from Britain. Gwinnett had spent about a decade in Georgia trying to build a life for himself. He was not terribly good at it, though. He found himself deeply in debt and seeking bankruptcy protection in 1773. He then tried his luck at politics, organizing settlers in western Georgia to reduce voting requirements and let more of them vote. When the Patriots took over the colony in January 1776, Button became commander of the Georgia militia. However, most officers balked at his appointment. Gwinnett had no military experience, and many even doubted if he was really a committed patriot. A month later, the new government sent Gwinnett to Philadelphia as a delegate to the Continental Congress and turned over military leadership to a man named Lachlan McIntosh. While in Philadelphia, Gwinnett tried to get himself a commission as a general in the Continental Army. However, the others in the Georgia delegation supported McIntosh, who got that appointment in September. About that same time, Gwinnett returned to Georgia to become Speaker of Georgia's Provincial Congress. Now, Lachlan McIntosh was also an immigrant from Scotland. He then lived in South Carolina for a few years before moving to Georgia with his two brothers. He made a life for himself as a merchant who also had little combat experience, but was a respected patriot and a longtime militia officer. He had seen some combat a year earlier in some of the early skirmishes in 1775. Colonel McIntosh replaced Gwinnett as commander of the Georgia Battalion in early 1776. As I said, he then received his general's commission from the Continental Army in September. That was the same commission that Gwinnett wanted for himself. Henry Lawrence, who was at the time vice president of South Carolina, knew McIntosh before the war and was a business associate of his. He supported McIntosh's commission in the Continental Army. Gwinnett, despite his success in becoming Speaker of Georgia's Assembly, seemed to hold a grudge against McIntosh that would cause problems for both men. I mentioned back in episode 92 that the Georgia Provincial Congress was, around this time, in the middle of creating its first state constitution. Leaders had begun drafting the document in April 1776. Before the Declaration of Independence, many contemplated this to be a temporary document until they settled the dispute with London. After independence, of course, it took on more significance. 
leaders debated the Constitution for months, eventually approving it to take effect on February 5, 1777. The new Constitution put most of the power in the legislature and created a separation of powers. However, on February 22nd, about two weeks after it took effect, the Council of Safety declared a state emergency based on rumors of a British invasion from Florida. It gave state president Archibald Bullock virtually dictatorial powers over the state. Bullock had been president since June and was also a big supporter of Lachlan McIntosh. He had even served under then-Colonel McIntosh a year earlier, before he became president. Two days after receiving dictatorial powers, Bullock died. Rumors circulated that he was poisoned, although no one ever proved anything. On his death, Speaker Button Gwinnett assumed the presidency of Georgia. A big part of Gwinnett's agenda seemed to be settling scores with his political enemies. The top of that enemies list was Lachlan McIntosh. Gwinnett, while still in the legislature, had launched an investigation of Lachlan's brother, William McIntosh, who was at the time a lieutenant colonel leading Georgia Patriots in the western part of the state. Gwinnett accused Colonel McIntosh with negligence for failing to defend several plantations against a raid by British soldiers and Indians from East Florida. Exhausted from fighting and frustrated by Gwinnett's inquiry, Colonel McIntosh took a leave of absence and gave up his command. Incidentally, William McIntosh had a Creek wife. His son, William McIntosh Jr., would grow up to be an important Creek chief who sold out the Creeks in the state of Georgia decades later, leading to their removal from the state. But that's getting into a whole different story. After William McIntosh resigned, Gwinnett went after Lackland's other brother, George McIntosh, who was serving in the Assembly, was a member of the Committee of Safety, and, like his brothers, a political opponent of Gwinnett. Apparently, John Hancock had sent a letter to President Bullock accusing George McIntosh of treason for allegedly assisting a merchant who was buying rice for British soldiers in Florida. The primary evidence against McIntosh was a captured letter from Florida Governor Tonin saying that he thought McIntosh was a loyalist. Bullock had ignored the letter, knowing that McIntosh was an ardent patriot. When Bullock died in February 1777, Gwinnett found Hancock's letter and ordered McIntosh arrested. Since the assembly was out of session at the time, Gwinnett sent a sheriff to bring back McIntosh in chains to Savannah. Once he arrived, Gwinnett denied him bail and threw him in jail to await trial. McIntosh remained in jail until Gwinnett missed a meeting of the Committee of Safety at which time the committee voted to release McIntosh on bail. Undeterred, Gwinnett wrote to Major General Robert Howe, commander of the Continental Army's Southern Department, asking that General McIntosh be removed from command because his brother's arrest for treason might create a resentment that would result in his failure to perform his military duties. General Howe, however, continued to have faith in McIntosh 
and refused to act on the request. As the Patriots fought amongst themselves, Florida Governor Tonin had cobbled together a force of local militia and Seminole warriors to challenge the Georgia border. General McIntosh had ordered a series of small forts built along the Georgia-Florida border. The word forts might be a little generous for these structures. The largest of these posts were log stockades with minimal defensive measures. The militia sent to occupy them had been left there for months without pay or supplies. They were not designed to defend against any serious siege. They served as bases for militia who were trying to stop roving bands of mounted loyalists who raided southern Georgia, mostly in search of cattle and slaves to steal. Fort McIntosh, which was known as Beard's Bluff at the time, was a small wooden stockade that housed a company of 27 militiamen who were in no mood to be there. On December 28, 1776, the garrison rode out on a standard patrol, only to run into an ambush about 400 yards from the fort. The patrol commander, a man named Lieutenant Bug, took an arrow, as did his horse. Three other soldiers were also wounded. The other eight soldiers on the patrol turned and fled back to the fort without firing a shot and abandoning their comrades. Lieutenant Bug, who could still walk, eventually made it back to the fort, but the Seminole killed and mutilated the bodies of the other three soldiers left behind. Back at the fort, Bug called on the men to prepare to defend the fort until reinforcements could arrive about two days later. The men, though, were in no mood to fight. They had been left for months in the middle of nowhere. They had no interest in being massacred. The soldiers decided to flee the fort and run away. Left alone, Bug had to ride to Savannah and report what had happened. The army did not prosecute the militia for desertion, but Lieutenant Bug resigned his commission a few weeks later. It's not clear whether it was from his own disgust or whether he felt pressure to do so after being unable to control his men. General McIntosh decided to reoccupy the fort, this time using a small company of Continental soldiers supplemented by South Carolina militia who had fought at the Battle of Fort Sullivan. They had come to Georgia to prevent any British invasion from the South. Militia Captain Richard Wynne of South Carolina commanded the new outpost, now given the name Fort McIntosh. The combined force of about 80 men rode on patrol trying to capture any enemy raiding parties that had crossed the border and threatened local farms. Over the next few weeks, they captured a few Indians, but did not have any major confrontations. On February 17, 1777, a group of about 70 Florida Rangers and 80 Indians attacked Fort McIntosh. Colonel Thomas Burntfoot Brown commanded the attacking force. Brown had been a Georgia loyalist. He got his nickname after the Patriots burned the bottom of his feet in an attempt to get him to renounce his loyalty to the king. They also tarred and feathered him, fractured his skull, and scalped him. Brown had escaped with his life and fled to Florida. There, he helped organize the Florida Rangers from other loyal colonists. Given his background, he was not terribly interested in showing much mercy to the Patriots. 
Along with Brown was another officer named Daniel McGirth, who had been fighting with the Patriots in South Carolina. According to one story, a superior officer ordered McGirth to give up his horse. When McGirth refused, he faced a Patriot militia court-martial, which ordered him whipped and imprisoned. McGirth then escaped to Florida, where he took a commission in the Loyalist militia. So, McGirth also had a personal motivation for revenge. The Fort McIntosh firefight lasted for about five hours, after which Brown demanded unconditional surrender of the fort. Otherwise, he would order the entire garrison to be slaughtered. Captain Wynne was not quite ready to surrender, but sent back a reply saying that he expected his men to be treated as prisoners of war if captured. Fighting continued for the rest of the day, with the defenders suffering one killed and three wounded. After dark, Wynne sent a messenger to nearby Fort Howe, also known as Fort Barrington, calling for reinforcements. But since Fort Howe had only a garrison of about 40 men, even if the entire garrison rode to their rescue, the enemy would still outnumber them. The following morning, about 200 British regulars arrived along with more Creek warriors. Wynne estimated that he was facing a force of about 400 to 500 men. Fighting resumed as Wynne held out in hopes of reinforcements who never came. With the reports of the regulars, the command of the attacking force fell to an officer identified in Wynne's reports as Colonel Fraser. This was actually Lieutenant Colonel Louis Fuser, an officer of the 60th Royal American Regiment, then operating out of St. Augustine. The fighting continued for most of the day. In the afternoon, Wynne and Fuser ceased fire and met in the middle of the field, outside of the fort, for a parley. Unlike Brown's demand of unconditional surrender a day earlier, Fuser was willing to allow the garrison to leave the fort and retreat north, taking only two officers as hostages. Wynne, however, remained concerned that after his men gave up their arms and left the fort, the rangers and Indians would attack and massacre them. He requested a company of regulars escort the garrison north to protect them from such an attack. Colonel Fuser agreed to the terms. By evening of the 18th, the British occupied the fort. The garrison marched north, protected by a company of British regulars. After marching about two miles, the regulars abandoned the men and returned back to Fort McIntosh. Fearing a setup, the men kept off the road, marching through swamps. Fortunately, no attack came, and the garrison reached Fort Howe without further incident. General McIntosh did not hear about the siege until the morning of the 18th. He tried to arrange a relief force of men and supplies. Before he could get organized, though, an express rider rode in with the message that the British and Indians had taken the fort. Brown and the Florida Rangers did not attempt to attack the retreating garrison. They satisfied themselves by rounding up about 2,000 head of cattle and taking them back to Florida. The regulars did not remain long at the fort. They left a contingent of rangers to garrison the fort, and a few weeks later, Colonel John Baker led a contingent of Georgia militia to retake the fort. But the presence of an armed British ship on the river nearby forced them to call off the attack. So, for the next few months, Loyalist rangers and their Indian allies controlled the area and conducted multiple raids across southern Georgia, 
with the Patriots unable to mount an effective defense. Next week, the Continental Congress meets in Baltimore. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. With this episode, we start 2020 and a new year. I wanted to say thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. This month, Tommy Connect joins Mason Pierce and Roger Williams at the Privy Council level on Patreon. Also, Rob Duvall recently upgraded to Standard Bearer, joining Eric Bloomquist-Jordan, John Pinella, Chris Roy, and Matt Stone. All of you guys will be getting your new flag magnets for the month of January in the next couple of weeks. I really appreciate all of you for stepping up and supporting this project. As a reminder to everyone else, you can become a supporter of the show on Patreon for as little as $2 a month and enjoy special benefits as well as that warm fuzzy feeling for being a supporter of the show. There is a link to my Patreon page on my website or just go to patreon.com and search for American Revolution Podcast. This week, we finally heard from Florida. As I said in the show, Florida was a British colony at the time. Well, actually two colonies, East and West Florida. But neither had much of any actual colonists living there. By the early part of the war, most of the new population were loyalist refugees fleeing from other colonies up north. Florida would remain a loyalist stronghold and a British colony until the end of the war. As part of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the war, Florida would be returned to Spain, which it had lost at the end of the Seven Years' War. At that point, most of the British colonists who had gone to Florida moved out and left for other British colonies in the Caribbean and elsewhere. After the war, Spain largely neglected its newly reacquired territory as it was having trouble maintaining its entire American empire during this period. Florida became a haven for escaped slaves and Seminole Indian raiders who became a nuisance for Southerners in the U.S. Spain also had several border disputes with the U.S. regarding Florida. 
During this post-war period, some American adventurers even moved into Florida and tried to start an independence movement. At the beginning of the James Monroe administration in 1817, Andrew Jackson invaded Florida in what became known as the First Seminole War. The primary goal there was to recapture escaped slaves who were living among the Seminole. Although Americans were eventually forced to leave, Spain had had enough, and it finally agreed to sell Florida to the U.S. in 1819 for a mere $5,000,000. Even so, Florida's population remained low until the invention of air conditioning. They didn't even exceed one million people in the state until the 1920s. So, for this revolutionary period that we're interested in, Florida was still well within the era of being almost completely unpopulated as a territory, at least by Europeans. And it was pretty much just a nuisance to its civilized neighbors it would continue to have problems of raids and counter-raids throughout the war. But most of these disturbances took place in the first couple of years. If you want to read more about that, what we discussed today, as well as some of the other raids that took place in the early war, my book recommendation this week is The Georgia-Florida Contest in the American Revolution, 1776-1778, by Martha Searcy. This book focuses on the ongoing dispute specifically between Georgia and Florida in the first three years of the Revolution, a time when we generally think of the Revolution as an almost exclusively northern affair. The book itself was first published in 1985, and it's about 300 pages long, with the last 100 or so pages being notes and index. Dr. Searcy was a native of Georgia who passed away in 2007. If you want to read more about America's southern border war during the Revolution, Searcy's book, The Georgia-Florida Contest, is a good place to start. For my online recommendation this week, I'm recommending the Georgia Encyclopedia at www.georgiaencyclopedia.org. This site is a helpful online resource of all things Georgia. It has a few articles related to the American Revolution. If you want a site with a Georgia-centric theme, you might find this one helpful. Again, links to both my book recommendation and my online recommendation are available on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.